Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes this. About that time, there was a major disturbance about the way. For a person named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, provided a great deal of business for the craftsmen. When he had assembled them, as well as the workers engaged in this type of business, he said, men, you know that our prosperity is derived from this business. You see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but on almost all of Asia, this man Paul has persuaded and misled a considerable number of people by saying that gods made by hand are not gods. Not only do we run a risk that our business may be discredited, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be despised, and her magnificence come to the verge of ruin, the very one all of Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were filled with rage and began to cry out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed all together into the amphitheater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's traveling companions. Although Paul wanted to go in before the people, the disciples did not let him. Even some of the provincial officials of Asia who were his friends sent word to him, pleading with him not to venture into the amphitheater. Some were shouting one thing and some another because the assembly was in confusion. Most of them did not know why they had come together. Some Jews in the crowd gave instructions to Alexander after they pushed him to the front. Motioning with his hand, Alexander wanted to make his defense to the people. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, they shouted in unison for about two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. When the city clerk had calmed the crowd down, he said, people of Ephesus, what person is there who doesn't know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple guardian of the great Artemis and of the image that fell from heaven? Therefore, Since these things are undeniable, you must keep calm. Do not do anything rash. For you have brought these men here who are not temple robbers or blasphemers of our goddess. So if Demetrius and the craftsmen who are with him have a case against anyone, the courts are in session, and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it must be decided in a legal assembly. In fact, we run a risk of being charged with rioting for what is happening today, since there is no justification that we can give as a reason for this disturbance. After saying this, he dismissed the assembly. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. How do we preach the gospel in cities that are so full of anxiety and reactivity and uncertainty? I don't know if you feel this emotionally, but we're in a moment, I mean, just get on social media for a sec, right? Like we're in a moment where it just feels like a tinderbox. Everything feels so combustible. Any conversation, like I don't know if you feel this in your workplace, in your families, just the wrong word could just trigger like a whole, an entire explosion uh, of anxiety. And, you know, there's just so much complexity, right? There's so much that's happening. It's so hard to navigate and figure out how do we embody the good news of Jesus, uh, in this moment. And I, and I find a lot of encouragement that that's not a new question, right? That's something the church has had to wrestle with over the centuries. Uh, in, a, in context, in some ways like ours, in some ways different than ours. Um, Ephesus was a part of this Roman context, this Roman Empire, uh, imperial context that was full of anxiety. And, and we see that like in cities 
where really every human city, right? It, it, anywhere you're pursuing peace. I mean, I think about uh, history. You know, we, if you study history, you know about the Pax Romana, right? The peace of Rome. Anytime you're pursuing, though, peace and prosperity and progress, apart from the presence of God, there's going to be anxiety, right? Like human cities are built, are fueled by this notion of pursuing progress, peace, and prosperity without the presence of God. And you're going to have an underlying vulnerability and an underlying anxiety when you have that kind of idolatry at play, right? That's the category. And so I love that the scriptures give us a framework to be able to understand what's going on and how we, how we enter into that space, into that tinderbox with a non-anxious presence. And that's what I wanna look at today. How do we, how do we embody this good news in a non-anxious way um, as we face our own anxiety? So I wanna just take a moment as we do each week to just pray. And I wanna invite you just to set aside your stuff for a moment and maybe just think about your own anxiety, right? Like name the anxiety that you carry inside of you, between you and other people, the anxiety that you feel kind of swirling and the chaos you feel swirling around. And I just, I just want to invite us, church should be a place where we can bring this stuff and hold it before the presence of God. Just ask God to meet us in the midst of that. And so let's just take a moment, take a deep breath in and out. Let's invite God, who's already here with us, to speak and to, to move and to meet us in the midst of this anxiety and to begin to teach us what it might look like to live a different way. And then I'll pray for us here in just a moment. God, our Father, we come to you acknowledging that we live in an anxious world, anxious people with anxious souls, perpetuating, escalating cycles of anxiety in our social systems, our community, our imagination, our institutions. And God, it can be hard to discern how we live differently in this moment. And so, God, we pray that you would just Encourage us, teach us the patterns of how you've been at work in the history of your people so that we might once again return to you, a non-anxious God who brings us into your very presence and gives us your power and your peace in Jesus. And as we learn to center ourselves, apprentice ourselves to Jesus, we learn to live the way of Jesus. And so would you teach us by your spirit what it looks like to live that way in a way that creates a similar disruption and redemption in our own time. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the context of Acts chapter 19, Paul, uh, again, on a missionary journey, if you've uh, been traveling with us over the last several months, we've been looking at Paul going into major, ur- major urban centers to preach the good news of Jesus. And Paul says in Corinthians that he has this wide open door of opportunity, and yet there is adversity that he's facing as he goes into these uh, cities. And so he, he finds himself here in Ephesus, one of the cities he spent a significant amount of time. He goes into the synagogue, preaches to the Jews. He experiences rejection. And so he withdraws and he 
essentially goes into and rents out a private uh, educational hall of some sort, and, and he starts a Bible study, right? It's, a, it's kind of a private Bible study with a small group of people, but it has this massive impact that like God's at work in a tremendous way. I mean, this is pretty spectacular. Uh, look at verse 10. Uh, he's basically, for hours at a time, just preaching and teaching and helping people integrate the way of Jesus uh, within their everyday sphere of existence. And verse 10 says, this went on for two years. So Paul is discipling, forming, shaping, teaching, modeling for two years so that all the residents of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the word of the Lord, right? So there's teaching that's happening. There's these crazy miracles that are happening to the point where Paul is like taking pieces of clothing, like a handkerchief or a cloth, and he's saying, hey, I can't even get to all the people. So as his clothing touches people, people are being healed in extraordinary ways. And so all these people are coming to Jesus. And this tends to happen when God uh, is at work and revival and renewal is happening. Uh, there's a group of like religious ghostbusters, these Jewish exorcists who try to co-opt the power of God. And so they're trying to cast out demons on their own power and with their own strength. And essentially, they just get beat up by demons. It's a crazy, funny, like ironic, hilarious story. I encourage you to read it some other time. Uh, but they're like, we know Jesus, we know Paul, we have no idea who you are. And they literally just beat them up and they run out naked uh, and they're totally embarrassed and humiliated. And then it all kind of ends there in verse 20. In this way, with all these crazy things happening, the word of the Lord flourished and prevailed. So that's kind of the, the setup to what happened. So as Paul's preaching, he's persuading, he's dialoguing with people about the good news of Jesus, the reality of Jesus. Verse 23 says, about that time, there's a major disturbance about the way. So the whole city of Ephesus gets into an uproar, right? And essentially, Ephesus is, again, a big city, 300,000 or so people, which at the time was a massive, it was like the second or third largest city in the Roman Empire. And all of this revolves around uh, the worship of Artemis. Now, I know that all of you probably spent this morning, you know, reading uh, history and understanding Artemis, but just in case you didn't, let me just give you a little uh, flyover of who Artemis was. Artemis, essentially a meteor falls out of the sky and lands in Ephesus. It, this passage actually alludes to it. And this meteorite had these orbs or like these bumps on it. And because we have kids in the room, you know, can't get too detailed with this, but essentially this is connected with fertility. They, they literally thought these were like breasts or uh, eggs of some sort. I actually have a picture if you want to see. This is the picture of the statue. Uh, actually, this is, well, yeah, sorry, go back one. This is the temple of Artemis right here. So the temple was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. This is a, a reconstruction here of what it could have looked like in that time because it's all ruins now. It was four times the size of the Parthenon, 400 feet by 225 feet. It had 127 60-foot columns. Just think about that for a second. A massive, massive building right in the center, the center of the city, right, where they would build these temples. This building was so secure. Like, think of it like Gringotts. Like, this building was so secure that the Caesars would, would literally put their money there because it was so, uh, so safe. And um, Artemis was uh, very central to the life of Ephesus, uh, it was the most widely followed pagan cult in the ancient world. 33 worship sites from Syria to Spain that have been discovered. And Artemis was kind of bringing together uh, the civic life, economic life, the educational life, the administrative and commercial and political life of the city. All revolved around and were kind of integrated in with the worship and the veneration of Artemis. So Artemis is this fertility goddess, essentially. And people would, would honor and, and, and reverence uh, this goddess. And so... 
this, you have this guy, verse, uh, verse 24, uh, named Demetrius, who begins to figure out that Paul is preaching this good news about this guy named Jesus, um, and he's saying that not only is Jesus Lord of the earth, right? Jesus is the, essentially the alternative to Caesar, which in and of itself is problematic, but he says, uh, he summarizes Paul's teaching here. This is how you know you're a good preacher, right? Like even the business people like, can, can, can kind of quote, it's like, you know, put it into a little epigram or a TED talk. He says, here's what I've heard about Paul. He, he's, Demetrius is essentially the leader of a guild of artisans or craftsmen, think like lead and marble and stone and silver, uh, and they would, they would make these replica um, terracotta shrines of Artemis. And um, the next picture shows uh, what those would look like. They made miniature versions of those that could be purchased at the temple and then taken home to use as like a votive offering or an amulet to curry favor uh, with, with the gods and kind of bless your household, right? This is like, uh, and again, no offense if you have, like, you know how people, uh, like a di- maybe a different, just like a generational thing, would have those little ceramic, like, angels, and it's like this, you know, bless our home kind of thing. That's, that's kind of what's going on uh, in Ephesus. And so Demetrius postures himself as sort of a civic leader. And he said, I, 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 I'm seeing how this is beginning to touch on our economic structure. And so he puts himself forward. He gathers some of the civic leaders in the community, other men in his guild together, and he, he sees himself as kind of doing a patriotic service, a protector of the honor of Rome. And notice the primary issue, though, is about money, right? This is when people start to get mad. You can talk about religion, but it's really, at the end of the day, he's like, this is beginning to touch our prosperity. And, and there's a connection here between business and commercial activity and kind of religious uh, worship and intensity. We see that kind of fusion. And, and so this really was about money. And so he gets angry. And he says, men, our prosperity is derived from this business. As a, as a craftsman, craftsmen were looked down upon. If you worked with your hands, you were viewed basically just above a slave, right? And so they're kind of like blue-collar men who had worked their way up the chain, upwardly mobile. The only status that they had essentially came from their wealth. So this is kind of attacking their social status and their whole way of life. And so he's getting frustrated. He gathers his group together. I'm sure you've seen that profits are down. It's been a bad year. Why is that? And all of a sudden, it's like, well, hey, there's this guy, Paul, who's teaching people that, I love this, he says it in a sermon in a sentence, gods made by hands are not gods, which seems intuitive, right? If you make your God, he's not a God. But like that apparently was not uh, obvious. And so uh, he, he makes this charge against Paul. He says, and this is again, pretty amazing. This man, Paul, has persuaded and misled a considerable number of people by saying that gods made by gods are not gods, made by hand are not gods. Not only do we want to risk that our businesses may be discredited, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be despised and her magnificence come to the verge of ruin. So saying they're subverting our cultural narratives, our institutions, it's beginning to have a massive impact. He's essentially charging Paul with sedition. And so he uses this as an opportunity to parlay this into a big public spectacle. So next slide here, there's a picture of the theater. This would have been the amphitheater where all of these people, he stirs up this mob, and this mob of people show up at the amphitheater. The seat's about 25,000 people, right? And so imagine just being there, 25,000 people rush in. I don't know if you've ever been a part of like a protest that goes sideways where just there's just like a, a mob of people running in and like all the stuff, right? Confusion, nobody knows why they're there, but somebody stands up and just starts saying, great is Artemis, great is Artemis, and, and it becomes this chant and it swells into this crazy just chaos and, and, and mob mentality. And, and it leads to, uh, you know, this, this interaction with 
uh, with some of the leadership in the city. What I want us to see here in this first little section is just, again, we've noted this throughout the book of Acts, and you see this as a recurring theme. When the gospel is preached, when, when the lordship of Jesus is taken seriously, there's always conflict, right? When the real gospel is preached and the full gospel is preached, the good news of Jesus, he's lord of heaven and earth, he's the king, he's the Messiah, he's bringing a reign and a rule into this world, it always provokes conflict. It, notice it doesn't create conflict. It just exposes the conflict that's already there but is kind of hidden under the surface, right? When the gospel collides, the good news of Jesus collides with people's idols and with the idols of the city. The result is it exposes this underlying tension that's already there. It disrupts the social and cultural and religious fabric of the city. And so I want to just kind of look at that together. Like, we should expect that, right? We we don't need to go out and, like, court that. I'm not talking about having, like, a weird, uh, like, victim persecution mentality. Like, there's a brand of Christianity that kind of is, like, you know, we're, we're victims and we, we, we want to try to go out and like, you know, we see ourselves through this narrative of persecution. And, and maybe it's not even about the gospel. It's about a certain style of being a Christian that courts that opposition more than the actual substance of the good news. That's not what we're talking about here. But I'm, I am saying we should expect there to be opposition. We should expect there to be conflict when we're preaching and living out the good news of Jesus. Jesus. And I want to just look at together what it was that provoked this conflict? What was it about Christianity that was provoking this this reaction, right? About that time, there is a major disturbance about the way. These words here, disturbance or uproar, they're the same kinds of words. It's the same word group that was used of Jesus when the crowd was surrounding him at the end of his life, and they're shouting, crucify him, crucify him. So Luke wants to say, this was not an isolated thing with Jesus. What was happening with Jesus is the same thing that's happening with the apostles, is the same thing that we should expect now as we preach and embody the good news, if we're really preaching the true gospel. I, uh, I want to just talk about it as a third way, right? Um, Gerald Sitzer, who's a Christian historian, he, he, he says, there was, this is what Christianity was. It was a third way. In, in the ancient Roman Empire, you had the Roman way, you had the Jewish way, and now you have a new, uh, what the Roman officials called a new race, a new genos, a new people, what he just calls a new way, right? Like Christianity, mostly in the book of Acts, is not referred to as Christianity. I think it's mentioned once that they're called Christians or twice in Antioch. The primary designation and label for the people of God, the disciples, is the way. And I love that, right? Like that's our vision as a church. It's taken from the book of Acts. We want to be a people learning to practice the way of Jesus together for the life of the world, right? And the way is more than just a set of beliefs, right? It's not less than that, but it's more than just doctrine and right beliefs. They were called the way because they were a social movement that disrupted the social and cultural fabric of Rome. Eugene Peterson, uh, a pastor a generation ago that inspired a lot of us uh, to get into ministry, he says this about uh, the way of Jesus. Jesus as the truth gets far more attention than Jesus as the way. Jesus as the way is the most frequently evaded metaphor among the Christians with whom I have worked for 50 years as a North American pastor. We cannot skip the way of Jesus in our hurry to get the truth of Jesus as he is worshiped and proclaimed. The way of Jesus is the way we practice and come to understand the truth of Jesus, living Jesus in our homes and workplaces with our friends and our family. 
We desire to be a church that practices the way of Jesus. And if we are living the way of Jesus, it will provoke opposition. And so I want to just give you three kind of characteristics that I think really uh, were, were lived out and embodied in this group that provoked this kind of conflict, and then just think about what that means for us in our particular moment. So three things. First, we see that the, this third way, the Jesus way, was the way of exclusivity. It's the way of exclusivity, it's the way of cultural formation, and it's the way of civility. Those are the three things I want to talk about. So we first see that it's, it's an exclusive way, but it's a different kind of exclusivity than was practiced in the Roman Empire. Again, this guy Demetrius says, one of the primary charges is, they say the gods made by hands aren't gods. They say their way is the only way, which means if their way is the only way, then our way is not the way, right? And again, you gotta understand how subversive this would have been in a Roman context. Rome did not operate, uh, their society did not operate like ours in the sense that they, they kind of cordon off religion as like a separate sphere of beliefs and practices or something that you do just on Sunday. Roman society was built and organized around a kind of civil religion, right? They didn't distinguish between your social life, your cultural life, your political life, your religious life. It was all integrated into everything that you do, right? Religion was not about like chosen doctrinal beliefs. Religion was a system of inherited cultural narratives and institutions and rituals and, and kind of commitments that you made. And you just lived them more than you talk about them. There was no like book of doctrine. It was just, here's the way that you live your life. And that includes all of these gods, this diverse, what they called a pantheon of gods. And these gods were gods of particular peoples or uh, geographic areas or areas of life or forces of nature. But they would essentially build these big temples in the middle of their cities to honor and reverence these gods. They had priesthood, right? They had altars and sacrifice, made sacrifices on shrines, and they had monuments everywhere. But the basic way that you would be a good Roman citizen is by reverencing and honoring the gods in all areas of your life, right? So you didn't have like your secular life and in your religious life, it was just life, right? And so when you would get together with people in your guild, right? So if you're a marketing person, you get together with other marketing people at a conference, your sales guild, right? Your teacher's guild, your artist guild. When you would get together, you would reverence the gods. There were gods over these different areas of life. When you gave birth, when you ate a meal, when you traveled somewhere, uh, when you uh, engaged in a feast or a festival, even households had their own deities that were reverenced and honored. And again, the key is like, this is all linked together. So the well-being of your household gods, the well-being of your civic gods was tied to the well-being of being a Roman citizen, the prosperity of Rome. And so the participation in this was a big deal, right? Participation was the way that you expressed solidarity with your family, your children, your grandparents, your, your you know, political officials, and the larger kind of Roman order of things. And so Rome operated on this system of what we might call selective exclusivity and tolerance and inclusion, right? They had a certain kind of tolerance for people who didn't worship their gods or who want to worship their own gods. So they go into a city and they conquer it and then say they have their own local deities. And they would just say, well, you can, you know, you like your insurance, you can keep your insurance. You like your gods, you can keep your gods, you can worship your gods. But the one thing that was out of bounds, the one thing that was not allowed was for anybody to say that their God was the only God or the supreme God, right? That was the big no-no, right? In that case, if you said, no, our God is the only God, then there would be violence, right? Then there would be suppression. 
And, and so that's always true, right? When you touch somebody's idols, idols have a way of being exclusive, right? Idols have a way of kind of dominating life and demanding complete, total allegiance. It's how you know you're in the grips of an idol, right, is that uh, it, it demands your full devotion and your full allegiance. In other words, it's demanding from you what only God should have. That's the, that's the essence of idolatry. And so there was this weird kind of tension of like tolerance and violence, what we might call exclusive inclusivity, right, or intolerant tolerance, kind of characterized Roman society. And, and, and the big idol for Rome was not Artemis, really. Artemis was just kind of a cultural narrative that represented Rome itself. The idol in Rome was Rome. It wasn't just about the temple or the guild or the shrines. It was about the superiority, right, and, and the exaltation of Rome. That was what they worshiped. It was kind of this militant religious nationalism. And so when they're in this amphitheater and they're screaming out, great is Artemis, great is Artemis, what they're really saying is, great is Rome, great is Rome, great is the Caesar. And nobody can, can come up against that because that's how we all experience peace and prosperity. So imagine Christianity coming along and saying, uh, no. Christianity comes along and they invert this paradigm of exclusive inclusivism and they live in what we might call an inclusive exclusivism, right? They have these exclusive claims. So Rome has her exclusive claims. So does Christianity, right? Christianity says, no, Jesus is the way. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the life, right? It's his life, his death, his resurrection. He is the one true God. He is the Lord of history. He is greater than Caesar. He is greater than Rome. And he's bringing a kingdom into this world right now through his life, death, and resurrection. And that means then, if he is the way, that everything over here that you're talking about in Rome that brings peace and prosperity actually is idolatry and it's enslaving you. It's destroying you. What you think is bringing liberation, this is the paradox of idolatry. What we think is bringing freedom and life and joy is actually the very thing that's killing us. And so you can imagine how that would be offensive. And yet that kind of exclusivity was lived out with an inclusivity that you didn't see in Rome, right? Like it was available to anyone regardless of ethnicity, regardless of class, regardless of culture. That annoyed the fire out of Rome because now they're recruiting pagans from all the different hierarchical like strata of Roman society. And all of a sudden they're sharing a common meal, which you didn't do in Rome, right? Upper class and lower class don't mix. Different ethnic groups, they don't mix. Why? Because apart from Jesus, that destabilizes the social order, right? So there's a threat to the like peace and prosperity of Rome. And yet Christianity said, we want to be a trans-ethnic, trans-local, multi-ethnic family and movement. We want to be inclusive in our exclusivity. And we want to operate not on the basis of a kind of coercive violence, but we want to give people freedom to like actually believe with conviction what they believe without coercing. We want to make a case for Christianity that's not coercive. And that's why Christians throughout the Roman Empire were the leaders and champions of religious liberty, right? Like saying, like Tertullian in the first, second century said, people should be able to have their own convictions and live out those convictions without the threat of imminent violence. And therefore, Christianity should not be a threat to the Roman Empire because we're making claims, but we're not trying to be some like subversive, violent, uh, you know, political movement in that way. But again, this is why Christians were called, you know, Christians were called by the Romans, they were called atheists because they didn't reverence the gods. They were called a dangerous, immoral, superstitious, pagan thing. 
dangerous to the empire. Now, what does that have to do with us, right? This way of exclusivity, inclusive exclusivity, I think is a model for us. It, 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 I think it has a lot to do with us. We, we think we live in a moment where we live in like a secular world, right? The secular social imagination that we live in a world where, uh, you know, exclusive truth claims are not a thing. And it's kind of like you do you and everybody's supposed to kind of leave each other alone. We've progressed beyond these like idols and superstitions. We live under what we might call the myth of tolerance and inclusion where everybody thinks everybody can kind of do their own thing and we shouldn't privilege any one particular cultural viewpoint above another. But like our lived experiences, we actually do, right? We actually do have a viewpoint, even the viewpoint that you shouldn't, that, that like you shouldn't um, have an exclusive truth claim and impose that on anybody else. That is a viewpoint, right? That is, that's the irony of the moment in which we live. And at least like Roman society was honest about it. They were overt about something that we try to pretend is not true, that every society always runs on exclusive truth claims, right? Visions of the good life fueled by, often, case, often cases by, idolatry. And yet we don't see oftentimes how our own cities, human-powered community runs on exclusive truth claims and on idolatry. And it's not just human community. In the book of Revelation, it actually says that idols are fueled by demonic powers and principalities. So we're not, even, we're not fighting flesh and blood. We're not fighting left and right. We're not fighting human enemies. We're actually fighting powers and principalities and darkness that fuel all of that darkness and injustice and idolatry that we see. And so we need to be aware that just like them uh, in, in Rome, we as Christians now should expect that when we preach and live out the good news of Jesus, we are doing so in a contested space. This is not a neutral space. This is not a space where people show up without convictions, right? Like, again, think about conversations with friends. Like, I mean, our society is, is running on a sort of outrage right now, right? Where people are coming very much with like a puritanical zeal about their positions, about the way that our society should work, right? And that's what happens. We should expect that when we're preaching the good news of Jesus. It is a contested space. We are going to face other uh, idolatries, other worldviews. We haven't progressed in America past idolatry. We think we have sometimes, but we haven't. An idol, Pastor Tim Keller says, is just taking a good thing and making it an ultimate thing. Taking a good thing and making it a God thing. And there's all kinds of ways that that happens in our society, and we need to expect those. We need to anticipate that kind of resistance, that kind of religious intensity when we go out and we begin to try to tell a better story to the world about what it means to flourish as human beings and, and to find a relationship with God. And so I give some examples on this next slide here of some of the ways that I see that playing out in our society, right? Like taking a good thing and turning it into a God thing, right? Like uh, narcissism, right? Like we live in a society where, again, is it bad to love yourself? I hope you don't hate yourself. That's not a good thing, right? There, there's, a, there's a kind of love and respect of yourself that's, that's good and right. But when it's taken to an extreme, it becomes narcissism. It becomes the cult of self. And that becomes your primary quest, self-pleasure, self-love, self-exaltation. We have a society built on narcissism. That's a sort of idolatry, right? Because it becomes a, mean of, a means of salvation, right? If I can get what I really want and I can express the deepest essence of who I am, then I can be saved. Then I can experience liberation. It's like, it's not really working out so great, you know? What is tribalism, right? Um, it's, it's when you, you know, take a love for your people and you make it an ultimate thing. Is it bad to love your people? Is it bad to love your family? Of course not. But if you love your family too much and you make that a God, 
we descend into what we're experiencing right now politically, which is not right and left primarily. It's about tribalism. Nationalism, right? You take a love of country. This is a weekend when we're all, you know, talking about Fourth of July and going to uh, parades and things like that. Again, not bad to appreciate your country, but when that becomes ultimate, then it becomes nationalism. Now we have a problem. Now it's competing with Christianity and the exclusive claims of Jesus as King and Lord of our lives. You can go down this list and you can look at different ways that we as a country have an American way. They had a Roman way. To be an American, to to be patriotic, to be a citizen here assumes a lot of these things are operating in your life. And we have to understand that when we share the gospel of Jesus, we are going to come up against and provoke these idols. And we've got to be careful that we learn to discern those idols, resist those idols, but to do it with a sort of humble confidence, right? To do it with this kind of inclusive exclusivity that says, yes, Jesus is Lord, but I'm not going to get violent. I'm not going to manipulate. I'm not going to coerce. But I have this story that is, we believe, a true and better story. It's a good story. It's a beautiful way of life. It is the true story of the world. And that means, then, that all of these other narratives are idols. All of these other narratives are attempts, and again, sincere attempts, but misguided, demonic attempts to try to find life and peace and prosperity and happiness apart from the presence of God. And we have to be able to say that in a winsome and humble way way while recognizing that our battle is not with people. It's not with parties. It's with principalities and powers. And man, like these idols are failing us, right? That's why our country is experiencing so much chaos. Our community is experiencing so much chaos. The failing scripts of modern secularity are leaving us anxious, empty, full of shame and guilt, right? Like we live in a society, if you get on social media, it is just all about shaming, right? Shaming each other. And the narrative is basically, you're wrong. You're a terrible person. And there's no hope for redemption. There's no possibility of forgiveness, right? It's just rage without redemption, which is like the worst thing, right? I'd take indifference. Like, who cares? You do you. But now it's just like, you're terrible. You're wrong. And there's no possibility of mercy, forgiveness, or grace. That's the kind of exclusive inclusivity that characterized Rome. And now we've just cycled back to that as a society again, in some ways regressing to something that we know doesn't end well. And so Christianity offers us a sort of inclusive way. We have a Savior who died on the cross for his enemies. He didn't fight his enemies. He didn't destroy his enemies. He comes and he lays down his life. And he says, this is what it looks like to live out in inclusive exclusivity. Okay, now quickly, because I know we're about out of time, Uh, I want to spend the most of our time there because I think that's so important for us to be able to say, yes, this is exclusive, but there's an inclusivity to it, an attractiveness to it that ought to frame up the way that we show up in the world. The second thing we see is not just the way of exclusivity, but the way of cultural formation, right? Not only do we run a risk that our businesses may be discredited, he says, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be despised, her magnificence come to the verge of ruin, the very one all of Asia in the world worship. Notice Demetrius starts paying attention. The guilds start paying attention when it hits their pocketbooks. Christianity always has a sort of public, social, cultural impact. The good news of Jesus had a massive impact on the social systems, the social institutions, and the cultural imagination of the city. This is what provoked the opposition from Demetrius. Not that people were being converted to another God. They could do that in Rome, no problem. 
Not, not that they could have their sins forgiven. Other systems offered versions of forgiveness of sin or appeasing the gods. They weren't even concerned that Paul was off to the side leading this little Bible study in the hall of Tyrannus, right? Like that people are being healed. They don't care about any of that. What they cared about was people stopped buying the shrines. Their prosperity was being interfered with. It was the, the economic systems that made them wealthy and propped up the mythology of Rome are being subverted through this resistance movement called the way of Jesus. That's what got them angry. Paul says not only is Jesus Lord of somebody's heart and soul and, and life, Paul's saying Jesus is the Lord of Rome. Jesus is Caesar's Lord. Jesus is the Messiah, the true King who's come to bring a kingdom not from this world that is superior to all the kingdoms of this world. He's bringing that kingdom into this world. And then he's charged his disciples to be in the world and for the world, to bring good news. That's what got them in trouble. And if you think about that, man, that requires a, a, a certain kind of formation, right? Like to wake up in Rome and to walk these cities, the amphitheaters, the temples, to, to live as a Roman citizen, like, it's just the air that you breathe, right? Rome, like, the, the propaganda of Rome was such that you didn't have to work hard to think and act like a Roman. They, they had that figured out. Now, imagine being converted, believing in the good news of Jesus, and then all of a sudden, you come into the church, and you're like, how do I live in a way that is both faithful, right, but also different and peculiar and unique, in a way that's compelling to my neighbors, my friends, and my coworkers. Like that required a process of formation, being intentionally and slowly over generations, being discipled and formed into a new story with a new identity, a new community, a new set of practices that then led them to do certain things, but to do them differently, or to not do other things. If you read the book of 1 Corinthians, it's all about this kind of culture formation that's like, hey, what kind of food can we eat? What kind of places can we go and not go? How do we live faithfully in this tension as Christians of not assimilating to the world, but also not isolating ourselves in such a way that we can't convert our friends and our neighbors? And it really began to change the way that they thought about everything. It changed the way, especially that they thought about money, the way they dealt with power, and the way that they thought about sexuality, right? That, those were kind of the really countercultural things that they were being taught and formed in. And again, this is a deep slow work of reflection and discernment and at times resistance. But it is what made them distinct. It is what caused problems for them. I want to just read this to us because I think this is so important for us. And we've talked about this a lot as a church. So I don't want to belabor this, but we have, we live in a moment where we too have to do this kind of cultural formation, right? Like it's not enough to just read your Bible and pray and, and, and not think about how to integrate your life with the life of the world. We, we cannot ghettoize ourselves, isolate ourselves. We have to be thinking critically about all spheres of life, right? Like how does the gospel and the good news of Jesus equip us to think about financial transactions, to think about how we show up in the arts, with media, in a digital space, in a capitalistic society? How does the gospel teach us to raise our kids differently, right? While still participating in our neighborhoods and being a part of what's happening. And I love this. There's a great example of this in church history, um, a letter that was written to this Roman official named Diognetes. And Diognetes, uh, they were kind of just asking, inquiring, like, what's happening? What is it that makes Christians unique and different than the way of Rome and even the way of Judaism? Because it was different than Judaism, although it arose out of it. 
And I just love this. I don't want you just to hear this. It's just maybe a, a different way to imagine our life together. I want to just read this to us again because I find it so compelling. Here's what this letter says about how Christians live their lives. Christians are distinguished from other men, neither by country nor language nor the customs which they observe. For they, they neither inhabit cities of their own nor employ a peculiar form of speech nor lead a life which is marked out by any singularity. They don't separate themselves off from the world. The course of conduct which they follow has not been devised by any speculation or deliberation of inquisitive men, nor do they, like some, proclaim themselves the advocates of any merely human doctrines. But inhabiting Greek as well as barbarian cities, they lived in the cities, not afraid, with a non-anxious presence, and following the customs of the natives in respect to clothing, food, and the rest of their ordinary conduct, they display to us their wonderful and confessedly striking method of life. They dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others, and yet endure all things as if foreigners. Every foreign land is to them as their native country, and every land of their birth as a land of strangers. They marry, as do all others. They beget children, but they don't destroy their offspring. They have a common table, but not a common bed. They are in the flesh, but they don't live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. They are poor, yet make many rich. They are in lack of all things and yet abound in all. They are dishonored and yet in their very dishonor are glorified. They are evil spoken of and yet they are justified. They are reviled and blessed. They are insulted and repay the insult with honor. They do good, yet are punished as evildoers. That's the kind of public faith and public impact. Like, what does it look like to be a church that truly impacts society? It, we, we can't reduce it to silly things like, how many people watch us on YouTube? <laughs> like, how many people get baptized at our church? You know, how, how, many, how many people attend and sit in a service on Sunday morning? That can't be the metrics. That's not the metrics that guided them. They looked at it and they said, wow, when the church is the church, it is literally turning the world right side up or upside down, depending on how you want to look at it. That's what it truly means to be a church that is forming holistic disciples, the whole gospel for the whole person, for the whole world. That's what we're doing. That's what they were doing. That's what we want to do as a church. Last thing, and I'm just going to mention it by name, but we see here, I think, just a really compelling invitation to also practice a way of civility in how we respond to opposition. And this kind of ties in with inclusive exclusivity. But just notice, like, it's the, it's the non-Christians, it's the pagans, the irony of this is they're angry and they stir up a riot and the city clerk has enough common sense to say, hey, you're charging the Christians of being subversive and disrespectful and starting a riot. You're actually the one who's starting the riot. It's your response to their exclusivity that's actually causing the problems. He says, nobody here doubts that Artemis is queen of the universe. These Christians are not robbing temples. There's nothing that they've done wrong here that's worthy of this demonstration. So go home. Christians are not the ones starting problems. It's the response to Christianity that's the problem. And I just love this vision of civility here. 
Like, right? Like, civility doesn't mean compromise. It doesn't mean we don't have convictions. It means we carry those convictions with compassion, with curiosity, and with a humility that refuses. Like, I, I see civility here in the ways that the Christian, I mean, like, I love that Paul wants to get in there. I love that, like, Paul's like, I, I want to get in the middle. And they're like, no, Paul, don't, don't go in there. But, like, Paul's wanting to mix it up and get in the mix. And they're like, they're gonna kill you and rip you limb from limb. But, but the, just the patience and the humility like civility is just refusing to mimic the anxiety and the outrage and the violence of our opponents and refusing to turn, return evil for evil. That's what it means to be civil. It means to hold your convictions. Like there is a way of doing Christianity. We have been infected as a church with a way of thinking about Christianity that is, well, if they're gonna be mean to us, we'll punch back harder. We'll be meaner. We'll be more, they're intolerant of us. We'll take over all the institutions and then we'll see who's powerful. I mean, that is, that is, that, that is a, stra- a sick strain of the, G- the way of Jesus. That is a distortion. It is not the way of Jesus. And we have to be able to say that. Like there's something worse than losing a culture where it's winning in the wrong way. And it's not even about winning, right? Like God does all the winning. God's the one who wins, not a particular party or religious group. And so in the end, what we see modeled here and throughout the rest of the Christians' presence in the Roman Empire as they begin to make a huge impact is humility. We see gentleness. We see kindness. We see forgiveness extended to oppressors. Rather than becoming oppressors, they forgive their oppressors. They're merciful to their oppressors. We see a respect for all people regardless of their position. Even if it's abhorrent to them, they still show them dignity and respect. There's a patience. Do you know how long it took for Christianity to truly turn the Roman Empire upside down? Hundreds of years. So calm down. Calm down, church. We may be working for things that our great-grandchildren will reap the fruit of. So calm down. We cannot live on four-year cycles of anxiety, hoping that putting this person in office or doing this thing using human means of power is going to change the world. It's not. And it's that very approach, by the way, that's making things worse. I'll just close with this because this is just Bible. This is, you're like, oh, you know, you're, you're just weak. <laughs> you're a pansy. Okay, Colossians 4. Same Paul, same kind of urban anxiety that he's experiencing. Here's what he says. Devote yourselves to prayer. Anxious people can't pray. Devote yourselves to prayer. Stay alert in it with thanksgiving. Be thankful for what God is doing among you. Learn to discern God's presence every day and see where God is at work. Don't buy into a narrative of cynicism and despair. Be patient. Pray. Be thankful. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open a door for us for the word, to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Paul was willing to go to jail rather than fight back and get violent so that I may make it known as I should. Act wisely towards outsiders, making the most of the time. Let your speech always, on social media or in person, always be gracious. Always be seasoned with salt so that you may know how you should answer answer each person. 
the way of exclusivity, the way of culture formation, the way of civility. There's a way of Jesus that turned the world upside down. And that's God's invitation to us again today. Let's pray, and then we'll go to communion and send you out of here. Father, thank you for the good news of Jesus, that the peace that we long for, the freedom from anxiety and performative living has been demolished in Jesus, that we can be accepted, that we can be loved despite our sin. God, that we can find the peace of God which passes all understanding, filling our minds, our hearts, our bodies, and then transforming the way that we live. So help us, God, to live in that non-anxious presence, to receive the good news of Jesus into our own lives, to internalize that, to allow that to subvert our own narratives, our own ways of living as individuals, as a church. And God, teach us to live your way, the way of Jesus, a way of humility, a way of love, a way of self-sacrifice, a way of exclusivity and formation and civility that God then begins to move out into the world and offer real deep transformation. That's what we long for as your people. So God, as we come to communion, may we just look inside and confess before we shout out to the world, woe are you. May we look inside ourselves and say, woe is me, to see our own sin, to see our own anxiety, the ways that we contribute to the brokenness and the chaos and the evil in the world, and we're not demonstrating and embodying the way of Jesus. God, may we use this as a time to just confess those sins, to bring our anxious hearts before you, to receive once again the blessing of communion, that we are your beloved children because of Jesus in whom you're well pleased. May we receive that again as the best news in the world, the best story that's the truest story. And may we live out of that this week. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.